Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Delighted to be back again, particularly on this occasion to celebrate Jean-Étienne Lietard, an artist who probably is not very well known to many of you, and I forgive you for not knowing. Um, he had a fantastic reputation during his lifetime, but somehow tipped off the precipice um, with his death in 1789, and really has demanded reconstitution, if you like, in terms of his reputation. At least I certainly think so. One of the things which has been so exciting about this exhibition, and I'll be talking a bit more about it as we go through, is that he was an artist who worked very much in pastel. And it's been a great challenge to get together the number of pastels that we have upstairs in the Sackler Galleries. A pastel is normally regarded as a very fragile medium, are very friable, liable to flaking, the dust just falling off the surface. And um, it was met with initially quite a lot of opposition in terms of getting the pastels uh, to the exhibition. But thanks to a lot of very hard work that has gone on in a collaboration between the Royal Academy and particularly the Art Institute of Chicago over some 20 years, it started when I got involved in and, well, was the curator for an Odeon Renan exhibition, alongside really major developments that have taken place in technology of transport, crating, and so on. We now have a protocol for the shipping of pastels, which did persuade some 34 lenders to let us have pastels. So that is what you see upstairs. And um, certainly, if you'd asked me four years ago, would we ever get that many pastels, I probably thought totally impossible. But anyway, there they are. Well now, Mr. Lyotard, um, the pastelist. Uh, the purpose of this exhibition is, as Kira rightly pointed out, an introduction to the artist. Uh, he was uh, born in the 18th. Uh, he was born in the um, in 1702, and he was uh, an artist of exceptional talent. His life spanned virtually the whole of the century, which also encompassed the Age of Enlightenment. And we have to keep this in our minds, I think, a bit as we're looking at his work. He was also a peripatetic. Um, yeah. He was also a peripatetic artist who recognised the centres of wealth and patronage and travelled accordingly. Um, his career took him from his natal city of Geneva to, amongst other places, Paris. Uh, London, Amsterdam, Constantinople, Vienna, Venice, Rome, Florence, and many other places besides. Uh, he was, in fact, very typical of an 18th century artist who, if you weren't the court painter, you basically had to make your way around from one centre of wealth to the next in Europe, where you knew or had already been told about or hoped that you would be able to find a market for your particular form of art. Equally importantly was the fact that his reputation stood so high during his lifetime that he was sought after by the crowned heads of Europe. Uh, we have him painting, as we will see, members of the French royal family, the British royal family, the Austro-Hungarian royal family, uh, but also, when he wasn't doing that, other perhaps less significant royal um, courts also called upon his, him for his, for his services. He was able to charge exceptionally high fees. For example, in the first year that he was in London, in 1753-54, um, it was reported that he made £6,000 in that year, which is equivalent to about a third of a million pounds today. Um, Horace Walpole, for example, considered these outrageously inflated prices, but it certainly enabled him to live in great comfort and to amass a significant collection of Dutch and French uh, uh, old master paintings. And painting that is now in the National Gallery on the left-hand side was part of his collection. We're going to meet another one later on in the lecture. Um, and interestingly enough, he makes a copy of it in enamel on glass, which I didn't ask because I felt that that was really pushing fragility one step too far. It's in the Kunsthistorisches Museum. He was also, I think, one of the very first artists to brand himself. Um, he donned Turkish, Turkish garb, a Moldavian fur hat, and sported a long beard. It's in the process of growing, as you get in this portrait, um, which made him instantly recognizable on the streets of Paris, London, 
or Geneva, and he was referred to as the Turk. Now, what are the main characteristics of his oeuvre? First of all, he was primarily a portraitist, working, however, on a range of different scales, from full-length portraits such as the one of Richard Pocock on the left-hand side, made when he was in Constantinople, to absolutely microscopic uh, little miniatures, no more than about four centimetres high. He also, although he made his reputation as a portraitist, he also engaged in genres and still life scenes, which we'll see in a minute. He worked in a wide range of media, from pastels on vellum, such as the wonderful Madame Telusson here, and pastels on paper here, is the self-portrait from the Uffizi. Two, working in oil, such as the still life with China set on the left-hand side, and a wonderful sequence of what we call deux crayon drawings, two chalk drawings on paper on the right-hand side with highlights, unlike in Watteau, who is the model for this, who would use white chalk, Lyotard tended to use white gouache, that's a watercolour base, um, for his detail. And then, if that wasn't enough, he also worked in enamel uh, and also gouache on ivory, such as the miniature on the left-hand side. And on the right-hand side, he was also a printmaker. He was pretty comprehensive in terms of what he handled. And when he comes to being a printmaker, again, although he didn't make a large number of prints, uh, those that he made tended to be mezzotints reinforced with etching, um, a, a technique that particularly appealed to him because it produced the same rather soft effects that he could also get in pastel. Another very important characteristic of his work as a pastelist was um, his approach to subject matter. And that was dominated by an attitude uh, towards verisimilitude in which he determinedly eschews all idealization of his subjects. Rather, he seeks to record the direct physical likeness of his sitters. He tends to set these sitters within neutral spaces with very few props, giving them an almost hyper-real quality through the acute observation of the light as it falls on their eyeballs, glance, details of their costume, and the minute recording of the different types of fabrics of his sitter's dress. This realist approach was possibly derived from a combination of his training um, as a young artist, first of all in Geneva, under a miniaturist called Daniel Gardel, but also the fact that he came out of a Swiss painting tradition, which was primarily influenced by the Northern Renaissance um, art of Memling, Van Eyck, Quentin Matzis, Cranach, then passed down to Holbein, and Holbein, of course, dominates to a large extent 17th, 18th century uh, Swiss painting. And it's that hyper-realist, that attention to the individual kind of strand of hair even in a, in a work which you find so much characteristic also of um, Lyotard's approach. And I just put up as a comparison a painting made in almost exactly the same year this is early 1750s by Gainsborough, the, the, the Mr. and Mrs. Andrews, who we all know from the National Gallery, um, set against Lyotard's portrait of Eva Maria Garrick, the wife of uh, David Garrick, the great Shakespearean uh, actor and also uh, theatre manager. And you can see how, as it were, advanced Lyotard's approach to verisimilitude of the portrait sitter is. In uh, Gainsborough's portrait, the two little figures look like dolls, pasted onto the background uh, of the landscape itself, and the heads are remarkably similar. You would not recognize Mr. and Mrs. Andrews if you saw them walking down the street. With Ava Maria, there is no question about recognition. Now, I want to make a little digression here onto pastel and the technique of pastel, because being such a central element in Lyotard's art and basically the basis of his reputation. I think we have to understand a little bit about how he was handling it, what it was, and how he was handling it. Um, on the left-hand side, I put up a sample of what is probably early 19th century uh, pastel uh, chalks. You'll see immediately what their vivid coloration. And that is because pastel was made from uh, pure pigment, which was ground down into a dust, which was then... Uh, consolidated by the use of gum arabic. In order to get slightly lighter tones, you would add a bit of chalk, 
a chalk which was either derived from plaster of Paris or otherwise chalk that came from the chalk that was used for making clay pipes, uh, 18th century clay pipes. Uh, it was, on the whole, a fairly friable um, uh, material, and just as an example of how it's being used, this is a portrait of one of two soi-disant uh, pupils that Lyotard had um, during his lifetime. This is um, Princess uh, Louise, uh, Louise Caroline Louise of um, Baden, who in 1743, when Lyotard was coming, moving back through Europe uh, from Constantinople, he stopped by at the court in order to make in the following, uh, following couple of years a, a sequence of portraits. And this is of her seated at her easel, correctly with her vellum, this is not paper, this is vellum, pinned onto a canvas, and she's holding a chalk. And that's quite unusual because you normally use it with a pot de crayon. But in the background is a wonderful tray with a sheet of paper on which is laid out her pastel chalks in slightly higgledy-piggledy fashion. Now, pastel had been invented, if you like, in the late 14th century, and um, by the end, sorry, by the end of the 15th century, and certainly uh, during the course of the latter part of the 17th, and certainly in the 18th century, it had become a very popular medium, uh, one which had great appeal because not being able to be uh, executed on a very large scale because its support is vellum or parchment. Vellum is a calf skin, parchment is a, is, um, a goat skin. Uh, they tended to encourage more intimate portraiture rather than portraiture on a grand scale. Secondly, and very importantly, it had the wonderful advantage of being very swift in execution. With creating a painting in oil, you have to wait for the various layers to dry. You have to have the sitter coming back on, a, on many occasions. You probably, if you're successful, have a studio with somebody who's going to be doing the background, somebody who's doing the drapery, and so on and so forth. The pastel tends to be the product of the single artist who can probably execute the portrait in a, in a very short number of sittings. We know that the portrait of David Garrick, for example, was recorded to have been made in five very short sittings when Garrick kind of dropped into um, Leotard's studio, sat for a short while, and then went off. Now, this is just an example of three uh, uh, pastelists working in Paris who were, in a sense, Leotard's, I suppose, competitors. Uh, Content de la Tour on the left-hand side, Perrenot in the middle, and Chardin on the right-hand side. They certainly did an enormous amount to popularize the medium of pastel in Paris in the 18th century. And by the time Lyotard moved there in 1722, they were already well established and their use of the medium must certainly, I think, have appealed to Lyotard. Now, there are essentially two types of pastel in use. One is um, a soft pastel and the other is a hard pastel. And they're very well demonstrated in this ravishing portrait of um, Count Algarotti, Francesco Algarotti, of about 1745. Soft chalk pastel is made by, um, by binding the chalk with only a small amount of gum arabic. It makes it more friable, and it means that it is made into quite fat sticks, which are then worked across the surface of the, of the vellum or the paper, and then rubbed in, smoothed in, in order to give this wonderfully kind of soft, velvety technique, uh, suggestion, which you get in, for example, Algarotti's coat. Hard pastel involves applying or binding the chalk with much more gum arabic, so that it gets into quite a hard stick, sufficient to be uh, sharpened to an extreme point. This allows the artist, having once... Oops, sorry. Having... Oh, correct. Having once laid in this wonderfully smooth um, and beautifully soft, modulated um, area of blue chalk for the um, blue, what we think must be silk velvet uh, coat, he then comes to deal with, for example, the rogue hairs of the wig that fall down the back, the individual shafts of, of fur which trim Algarotti's coat, all of which are applied with this hard chalk, hard pastel chalk. So the range is there, the artistry and the mastery lies in the manipulation of those two. Pastel also had another um, 
characteristic property which um, Lyotard made very good use of, and that was uh, mixing pastel with chalk. Now, you could do one of, sorry, with water. You could do one of two things here. Either you just dipped the pastel chalk into water and then drew it across the surface of the work, such as we have here, which gives an effect not dissimilar to the effect of white, Chinese white, uh, used on a water base, and we call it gouache, in, in, um, in relation to watercolour. It produces an opaque white as opposed to a translucent colour. The other area is much more difficult to identify, but wonderful once you've found it. Instead of uh, letting down the, uh, or dipping, ducking literally, the soft pastel chalk into water uh, in order to get this opaque, wonderful kind of serpentine lines, uh, Lyotard would take the pastel chalk, white, uh, usually, he would then mix it with only a very small amount of water to create a paste. He then applies the paste onto the surface of the, of the pastel in order to get increased highlight. And this is very well demonstrated in this uh, portrait here. Now, I have yet, I'm afraid to photograph it with a raking torch on one side and my camera on the other. That has yet to be done. Um, but if you go upstairs and look at this portrait, all of the very light detailing here on this wonderful gold-embroidered bodice which Madame Henriette de France wears is all created by these little dabs of, of pastel paste which sit out and creates a, a three-dimensional effect, in fact, reality. What would have happened was as you walk past a pastel like this, usually with a candle, it would pick up these additional patches of impasto, of, of paste, literally, and would increase and intensify the glimmer of the gold on the surface of the, of the pastel itself. Now, pastel uh, would be either laid down on paper or on vellum, as I've said before. The paper tended to be a rather roughened, often blue paper, which would allow the pastel chalk to grab onto the surface and hold. Alternatively, you would use vellum, which the finer you could get the vellum sheet, uh, vellum being, as I said, from calf, uh, the smoother you could get a textured surface. However, you couldn't get it so smooth that the pastel chalk wouldn't sit on the surface. So you then prepared the surface with a pumice stone, just giving roughening up the surface very slightly, and then the pastel chalk sits upon it. Once it has been fixed, once it's been placed on either of these two surfaces, the surfaces would have been already uh, mounted on a canvas and then on a stretcher. You would then apply fixative, and once the fixative had been applied, we don't know what sort Lyotard used. We know, however, he did, and that fixative was very widely used in France in the 18th century, well, in France in particular in the 18th century, but also in this country. Um, he would then slap the painting, the pastel, under glass into a frame, put a backboard on it, and pad the back so that it wouldn't get in damage from anything from rags to newspaper to board. That means that there are a large number of original frames in the exhibition upstairs, which is very unusual since frames tend to be the one bit of furniture around an, um, a painting that gets that get constantly changed. So it's well worth looking for. I thought now just having given you a kind of brief review on pastels, it would be useful just to compare how similar Lyotard's pastel handling was to those of his main competitors. And what I put up here is a comparison of a pastel which, alas, we couldn't get because it's in the States and we weren't flying, we weren't bringing any pastels by air. But it is a wonderful piece, so I thought we'd show it anyway, of Madame Tranchin. And then on the right-hand side, Perrineau's um, portrait of the, what have I called him, um, of the, yes, the engraver, Gabriel uh, Huquier. Now, what is interesting about this is that uh, in the Perrineau, on the right-hand side, we see, generally speaking, uh, very strong evidence of him leaving a trace of the individual strokes that he's using in order to build up the image of the, of the sitter. That having been said, he does, of course, use a certain amount of hard pastel. But look at the way in which the coat is handled here, or even the silk jabot. It is using 
on the whole soft pastel chalk with articulation of the individual strokes. Here, for example, here, and so on. In the case of Madame Tranchin, this is not the case. What uh, Lyotard does is that he takes his soft pastel and as with the Count Algarotti portrait, he smooths it in to give this wonderful velvety effect. Then when he gets to the details, such as the lace trim of her cap or the lace round her neck or indeed even the crinkles of the ribbon, wonderful blue ribbon, he is not resorting to a generalized statement of this is a sort of lace. He's giving us absolutely the detail the precise nature of the type of lace that Madame Tranchin has in, put round her, her collar. So there is, if you like, a much greater sense of control, a much greater sense of unity. And indeed, Lyotard himself made this point in, his, uh, in an article, in fact, which was published in the Mercure de France for 1761, when he says, the qualities that are the most agreeable and most essential in painting are orderliness, correctness, and unity. And rather than having this wonderful kind of almost expressive effect which Perrineau gets, Lyotard is going for that single, homogenized, unified effect. Having looked at the background, the general characteristics of Lyotard's work and how he's handling pastel, um, and I want to just take, say something very briefly about his early formation and then move into the six chapters of what we have displayed in the exhibition. Um, he, as I said, was born in Geneva in 1702. He studies very briefly with this miniaturist called Daniel Gardel, and then he moves to Paris in 1722 to train with a miniaturist and engraver called Massé. While in Paris, he seeks election to the Academy Royale de Peinture et de Sculpture, but is blocked, almost certainly by Massé, who was extremely grumpy at the fact that Lyotard had decided to leave his apprenticeship in 17, uh, 1725 and go off and establish his own um, career, uh, his own independent um, career. And he, produces, he uh, establishes this on two counts, one in portraiture, and here is an example. There are very few surviving early pastel portraits of his time in Paris. This is of his twin brother, who turned into an exceptionally talented engraver, also trained by Massé. And this is a portrait which is in fact done um, in 1737, when he was beginning to establish his reputation in Italy. Having had his uh, entrance to the Académie Royale blocked, Lyotard feels that rather than staying on and doing battle with the Académie Royale and Massé, he would move to other possibly potential uh, centres of, uh, of uh, commission. And he gets invited, in fact, by the Marquis de Puissieux, who had been recently appointed the ambassador, French ambassador to the court of the two Sicilies in Naples, to accompany him there in 1735. The following year, he moves to Rome, where he made pastel portraits of uh, the exiled Stuart Court uh, of the exiled James III, plus his children, who will come across again. Also, this gave him access to the papal court. He does portraits of the, of the Pope and cardinals, none of which, as far as we know, have survived. But also, and very importantly, Rome gave him the possibility of being introduced into the circle of the English grand tourists, who were flocking to Rome to, uh, to complete their education by access to ancient classical civilization and also, of course, the achievements of the Renaissance. And there he met two key figures, uh, the Earl of Besborough and the Marquis of, uh, of Sandwich, who invited him in 1738 to accompany him on their extension of their Italian grand tour, which was quite unusual, in fact, which was to take them to the Levant. And they basically wanted Lyotard to come along in the guise of basically a recorder of what they saw, because, of course, in the days before photography, you had to get an artist to come along to do that task. Um, now, having got him on his trip to Constantinople, and I want to go through the uh, various sections of the exhibition to give you a sense of how Constantinople Constantinople fits into the bigger picture of his work, but, and also how important it was in terms of his subsequent uh, 
commissions and reputation. Lyotard, and the exhibition opens with this chapter, was an inveterate self-portraitist. And we felt that it was very important that you should, in a sense, enter the exhibition and meet the artist and his family. There are 17 known uh, self-portraits which have survived. There may have been more, but these are certainly the ones that have been inventoried. They're made throughout his career. They're made in a total range of different media. And it shows him in various guises. Really, as a means of mapping, I think, his trajectory from youth to old age. Here we see him on the left-hand side here in a pastel, a wonderful blue paper, but very sadly far too fragile to bring to the exhibition, of him at work with his pastel chalk held in a, in a pot de crayon seated at a sheet of blue paper which has been mounted on, an e on a canvas on an easel, sporting his long Turkish beard and his red Turkish kaftan. Here we have him again with his long beard, uh, this time with a Turkish felt cap uh, in a miniature which is made when he was first uh, came to England in 1753. With his marriage to Marie Fogg, Farg, who I'll come to in a minute, um, the one uh, deal that he did with her was that he would shave off his beard. She was patently not keen on the beard. So we have uh, a group of self-portraits which relate to the period 1756 to 1782, which shows him beardless, but again, in a range of different media. Oil, black chalk with white highlight, and this, a wonderful mezzotint uh, proof uh, plate of um, a self-portrait which he used ultimately as an illustration, actually as a frontispiece, for his uh, treatise on art, which was published in 1781. In 1756, as I said, he married Marie Farg, who uh, was the daughter of a Huguenot merchant living in Amsterdam. And uh, he painted this really ravishing, very modest, very um, uh, truthful in some ways, but very sympathetic portrait of Marie Farg the following year. It's truly a remarkable pastel because at first sight it seems virtually monochrome until you notice that he starts to introduce tiny elements of or hints of a light blue tint which may be this white, otherwise white uh, top to her bodice may have had and also wonderful detail of the little ruckled uh, uh, ribbon that she has round her neck. She has this wonderful sense of immediacy. She, the white light catching on her pupils gives her an immediate mo a moment of sort of a sense of vivacity. She glances in our direction as if her attention has just been drawn to our presence. And it's done against this wonderfully neutral background. He also does portraits of his children, uh, such as this wonderful De Crayon drawing of about 1762 of Marie Farg on the left-hand side and his firstborn child, a son, also called Jean-Étienne. Now, this is him exp exploring, exploiting his mastery of the two-chalk uh, drawing technique, which he had basically learned from Watteau. Watteau had died the year before uh, Lyotard arrived in Paris, and Lyotard obviously knew his work because he owned three Lyotards himself in his own collection. He also was engaged in making engravings after Lyotard's work. He made portraits of his uh, children in uh, pastel as well, such as this ravishing portrait of Marie and Françoise Lyotard of about uh, 1774. Uh, this is a portrait which is really... Actually, I've got the date wrong. That's 64. I'm sorry. That's a typo. I apologize. Um, this is one. This is of his youngest daughter, and really absolutely ravishing. She sits uh, against a neutral background. She holds her doll. Now, at first sight, this seems to be a straightforward portrait. She, we have all of the characteristics of truth to subject matter, to the sitter, truth to gesture, truth to the materials in which the, uh, the doll and she, uh, their dresses were made. But it has more than that. It also has an element of narrative, which is something which we find creeping in from time to time in Lyotard's portraits, because she's holding her finger up vertically. And we know from a comment written by her brother, 
uh, later in life, that she was actually in the process of reminding her, or uh, telling her father, who has just entered her space, that he's not to make any noise because her baby is asleep, her, her, her uh, uh, doll is asleep. Um, and that, in a sense, gives it an added vivacity, I think, as, as a portrait. Now, Orientalism. Uh, Lyotard, as we heard, went to Constantinople in 1738. Uh, the group of milords, Besborough and, um, and Sandwich, accompanied by Nelthorpe, uh, set off uh, from Naples, travelling via Sicily, Greece, Malta, Greece, the Cyclades, and finally landing uh, at Smyrna before making the, route, the trip up to Constantinople. His uh, journey to Orientalism was to, stay, was to engage him in four years of his life, insofar as he stayed in the city, Constantinople, um, for that length of time. He uh, certainly, while he was in, in Constantinople, concentrated on three areas of activity. One were portraits of European residents, either passing through or permanent residents, belonging either to the British uh, expatriate community, such as, for example, Pocock on the left, or otherwise from the Frankish community. This is the non-British but European um, community based in Constantinople. Or he was making records of characteristic types, such as this wonderful um, character, the gentleman from the court of Jassy, on the right-hand side, complete with full costume, and in which all costume detail is correctly observed. Or otherwise, he's doing scenes of contemporary life in Constantinople or contemporary things in Constantinople, such as this wonderful interior of his own salon, of the house that he lived in in Constantinople. The fact that Lyotard... Well, I'll come on to that in a minute. Right. Um, the important uh, figure in establishing his reputation uh, or, and getting commissions for him in Lyotard, in Constantinople, was, Constanti uh, was um, uh, Faulkner. Sir Everard uh, Faulkner had been appointed ambassador to Constantinople in 1735. And when Lyotard and the train of milords turned up in Constantinople three years later, the first person they went to pay their respects to was, in fact, Faulkner. Now, Faulkner is shown here in, again, a wonderful two-chalk drawing, seated on a European chair, but kitted out in basically Orientalist garb. Uh, he doesn't have a wig. He wears a sort of small turban. He's wearing Turkish slippers, and he wears an Orientalist sort of house coat. And this is indicative of the fact that several of, the, of um, Lyotard's sitters all engage, uh, all wished themselves to be presented in Orientalist gear when they sat for him in, uh, in, in Constantinople. We have an example here of Nelthorpe. Probably uh, Nelthorpe was in the train with, of Besborough and Sandwich, and this may well have been the first pastel portrait Lyotard made in Constantinople because Nelthorpe arrived with the train in July of 1738, but by October he was already back in Florence. And then we have Besbra. Now, you may well ask, why were these guys all kidding themselves out in oriental costume? Was it because they just wanted to be in fancy dress? Or was it because they basically wanted to perhaps achieve another end? And in fact, what is really interesting is that, as the Earl of Sandwich rightly commented uh, when he was uh, about his time in Constantinople, he advised all visitors from the or from the West to wear oriental dress because it was very good camouflage. If you were wandering around the streets of Constantinople, you were far safer dressed in a Turkish kaftan and wearing a, a turban or, a, or a, a hat, felt hat, rather than being in, in European dress. There was also a second consideration. The Turkish garb was incredibly comfortable. It was very well suited to the climate, which in the winter was cold and damp, and in the summer was hot and humid. So to have rather capacious, sort of uh, flowing garments around you was a far easier way of keeping cool in the summer, and in the winter, you lined your kaftan 
with fur, and that kept you nicely snug. Alongside making portraits of Europeans in oriental dress, such as also this pair of portraits of the Earl of Besborough, his patron, and uh, his and Besborough's wife, uh, he also made portraits of Europeans in European dress. Now, unfortunately, we were unable to get any pastel portraits um, or portraits in pastel um, showing this format. Um, and so here is Lady Tyrrell, uh, made in Constantinople, but there she is, donned out in her rather tight lace bodice, probably not very comfortable in the Constantinople climate. But on the right-hand side, we have the portrait of Monsieur Pellerin, uh, a French consul in Smyrna. Very interestingly, kind of making the crossover between the Oriental and the non-Oriental. He's seated on a sofa, sofa, um, but is in uh, European dress. Now, I mentioned that one of the other strands that Lyotard explores when he's in Constantinople is uh, scenes of contemporary life or otherwise painting uh, portraits of people, indigenous people, in their native costume. Uh, we have examples of both of these on the screen here. On the left-hand side is the portrait of Laura Tarsi, wonderful, exquisite, 6.5 centimetre high miniature, if you can imagine that. Um, but here she was Greek, but, part, but resident in Constantinople and seemed to form part of Lyotard's circle. But here she's wearing her traditional costume, which Lyotard has observed down to the minutest detail of even the form of decoration that her wonderful belt here has um, at her waist. He also records scenes of contemporary life, such as these two wonderful Turkish musicians on the lower right-hand side, or indeed a scene, a genre scene of um, contemporary life uh, of this woman who is, uh, yes, uh, serving, a woman serving, maid serving coffee. I've got to change the label upstairs because it's not tea, it's coffee, um, in a very characteristic uh, uh, oriental setting. He also made views of or records of Constantinople types, which he then used for engraving subsequently when he got back to France. Now, that was very important because that was a means of him basically advertising the fact that A, he'd been to Constantinople, and B, he was now in the market for creating scenes of Orientalist life, which met... And a growing demand in France and elsewhere in Europe for what was known as turquerie. That's where, that, that is, scenes from the other, the non-Western, which was seen to be exotic and therefore of tremendous interest. Now, almost with a kind of romantic overtone to it. Lyotard's contribution to this genre um, can be seen here in the uh, woman reading on a sofa, um, which was made in during his Paris visit between 1746 and 1752-3. The pose of the sitter, it's a model, French model, is derived from a drawing that he'd made in Constantinople. She is wearing a costume which we know Lyotard owned and had bought in Constantinople. He brings it back to Europe with him and uses it not only here, but in another genre scene of a woman uh, seated on a sofa reading a letter, and also in two portraits of English sitters who, for some reason, wanted to kit themselves out in this particular garb. She's, however, seated in a sofa, and the sofa, detail of the sofa, and the detail of the background here all firmly identifies the setting as being Constantinople, and a truthful representation of that because we have this as evidence of what Lyotard was familiar with and recorded. Now, this sets his own contribution to Turquerie, or early Orientalism, really aside and apart from what was being produced by his contemporaries. There, the tendency was, because it was painted, it was undertaken by artists who'd not been, generally speaking, been to Constantinople, there is an element of the imaginary, the slightly um, exotic, communicated through a kind of, uh, how would I say, an elision between what was thought to be, oops, Orientalist garb 
and what was thought to be the interior of a harem, but then with a distinct intervention of things Western. So here, in the Van Loo, the Grand Turk um, giving a concert to his mistress, um, they are firmly placed within a Baroque, Roman Baroque palazzo interior. There's nothing oriental about it at all. And likewise here, although Guardi has tried to give us a bit more of the exotic, we still feel ourselves very firmly rooted in Rococo France or Italy. And even when uh, Reynolds comes to make his portrait much later on of Jane Baldwin, he can't resist having her seated in an equivalent also of a Baroque palazzo. Even when we meet an artist like Jean-Baptiste Van Moor, who spent um, the time from 1722 to 1732 in Constantinople and recording a lot of the detail, we have none of that sense of verisimilitude, of the absolute immediacy, if you like, of which we get in, in Lyotard's genre scenes. Now, having been in Constantinople for four years, Lyotard receives an invitation from the uh, ruler of Moldavia to go to his court at Jassy, where he undertakes portraits of himself, of, of the ruler, his wife, and their entourage where, over a 10-month period. He then travels on to Vienna and then subsequently back to Geneva before moving to Paris. In 1753, encouraged by Faulkner, Oops, who had been the uh, ambassador, as you recall, in Constantinople, and this is Lady Faulkner, um, he came to London. And there, really building on the network that he'd established through Faulkner in Constantinople, he develops a very successful and high-profile portrait um, practice. He is introduced to the aristocracy of the day, um, so not only is he undertaking portraits of Lady Faulkner in this wonderfully immediate and vivid uh, portrait of her at work, she's looking for a needle in her sewing box and she's holding a thread just through her thumb and her finger. But the way in which the detail has been handled here of the lace, black lace falling over the white lace of her dress is really phenomenal and so convincing. Likewise, we meet Lady Guilford, Countess of Guilford, Francis Furness, who um, was no beauty and was certainly an indication that Lyotard did not muck around with, uh, you know, idealizing his sitters. When he was asked to paint somebody, he painted them as he saw them. Um, and that covered, of course, not only their physiognomy, but also, of course, their costume. Uh, two other uh, sitters, Lady Anne Connolly on the left-hand side in this marvelous kind of um, carnival dress, and on the right-hand side, the poor Marchioness of Hartington, who was actually the daughter of Lord Burlington, who owned this house. Um, she died the year after this was made um, from smallpox. Uh, but Now, when he wasn't painting portraits of, of people in, in England, in London, where he stayed for two years, he also, at his various uh, locations around Europe, for example, Paris from the period 1746 to, uh, to 1752-3, um, he was painting portraits of people passing through the city. David Garrick, on the left-hand side, must have been recommended by people from Lyotard's Constant Constantinople circle to seek Lyotard out when he visited Paris in 1751, at the height of his fame as an actor-manager. And he sat, as I said earlier, for five sittings, and this was the product of that, uh, of that um, commission. Uh, when Lyotard found himself in Lyon, ter temporarily staying with uh, his older sister, who had married a Lyonnais merchant, uh, in 1770, he is put in touch with William Constable, William Constable of uh, Burton Constable, who was on his third grand tour at this time, uh, and came to Lyon with the express desire to meet Rousseau who had uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the, the, philosopher, the philosopher and uh, author, who was uh, temporarily in residence in the city. Perhaps in homage to Rousseau, because William Constable established a very close relationship, friendship with Rousseau, which produced an incredibly important correspondence between the two of them, lasting for more than a decade. 
um, we have Constable painted in what probably was the costume in which Rousseau had himself painted in four years earlier when he'd come to England in exile wearing a Moldavian outfit, fur hat and coat. And here is him here. Then another Brit, another English sitter, who uh, caught Lyotard when the sitter was en route to Italy via Geneva. In, at the age of 19, in 1763, Lord Mount Stuart, the son of the second Earl of Marquis of Butte, was travelling through uh, Geneva and staying with the very wealthy banking family, Picte. Uh, he stayed in their villa just outside Geneva, and it was there that this full-length, magnificent pastel um, was made. We've only got, unfortunately, the, the engraving, very fine engraving, in the exhibition because this is far too fragile to travel. However, Pictet was wanted to keep a record of this really highly um, uh, challenging portrait. And he uh, commissioned Lyotard to make a head and shoulders version of this. And you can see it got cut off just there, sort of along there. And it's this one that we have in the exhibition upstairs. Uh, in all respects, although you could say, well, it's a variant of or a copy, it has all of the expertise and skill of the original, not least of all in the handling of the, of the costume. Now, Lyotard came twice to England, once in 1753 to 5, and then a second time between 1772 to 4. He um, undertook, uh, amongst other things, uh, a second series of portraits, he uh, exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1773, showing five works. 1774, showing um, portraits of his son, La Bure, uh, which is up here. And he also had an exhibition of his works and also of his old, old master collection at, great, at his um, lodgings in Great Marlborough Street. Now, royal portraits. Lyotard had a number of key royal patrons and really who continued to call upon his, his services throughout his career. We meet, first of all, his connection with the exiled Stuart uh, court in Rome in 1737 with these two wonderful miniatures of Bonnie Prince Charlie on the right-hand side and Henry Benedict on the left. He then, when he's in Paris, is introduced to the court of Louis XV and is commissioned to make nine portraits, one of Louis XV and the rest of his children, of which we have two here, in grand royal status pose and in their original frames. He then comes to London and is introduced to the Hanoverian court by Everett Faulkner and is given a commission to undertake also nine portraits, one of Augusta, the recently widowed um, uh, Princess of Wales and there she is on the left hand side and of the Prince of Wales and of his siblings. Uh, note how much more dressed down the presentation of Augusta, Princess of Wales, is than Louis XV and his daughter, Madame Henriette. There's a very different attitude towards portraiture and so on at play here. And here are the three children. Wonderful indication of Lyotard's ability to capture the immediacy and the almost haunting quality of children's um, uh, personalities. Then he goes to uh, Vienna, initially passing through there in 1743 when he executes this portrait of Maria Theresa, who's going to become Empress of the Holy Roman Empire. But in 1762, he receives a commission to undertake 11 portraits of her 11 surviving children in two chalk crayon, and, uh, but on paper, and quite simply because she wanted to have them in a format that she could put in a portfolio and take round with her as a souvenir of her children. She'd made her progress around her very extensive empire. Technically, these are absolutely fascinating, and I just want to draw your attention to Marie-Antoinette. On the verso, that's the back of the sheet of paper, which is quite thin, in order to get a certain amount of colour coming through, for example, the pink of her silk dress, he puts a wash of pink gouache on the back uh, within the outline of the figure itself. He then turns it over and then runs, it, runs over it in red chalk. Once Lyotard had settled in 1757, more or less, 
not permanently, well, yes, more or less permanently in Geneva with his family, although he's still shuffling around Europe from time to time in response to commissions or other demands of the market. He establishes a major uh, portrait uh, trade, if you like, um, in Geneva itself, painting the uh, professional elite, because, of course, Geneva was a republic and didn't have an aristocracy. However, their professional elite was extremely well healed. And here we have Monsieur Telusson, Isaac Louis, who was a banker, belonged, in fact, to a bank which had international uh, branches in London, Paris, as well as in Geneva. And here, recorded with his wife, the wonderful um, uh, figure on the left-hand side, um, at the point of his marriage. It's his second marriage, and uh, he's recording it in this double portrait. And as always with Lyotard, not only is the handling of the, of the physiognomy beautiful, the handling of the detail of the hair wonderful, the information about the stuffs in which their, their, costume has been, their costume has been made, but there is this little detail. This on his ring is a portrait of her, and this on her, on her bracelet is a little miniature of him. And all of this is being recorded so that we don't miss the message, if you like. However, not all the Genevois dressed like Monsieur and Madame Telusson, and there were the somewhat um, more Calvinist uh, sitters, such as the Monsieur and Madame Naville. She owned a very considerable portion of Geneva, and so was not poor. He was the owner of textile mills, also not poor. But when you look at them, there's a kind of modesty and control and restraint in the way which they've been presented, which is truly remarkable. The last little chapter I want to just deal with is his engagement with genre painting, still life, and trempe l'oeil. He doesn't do nearly as many um, works in these three genres as he does, obviously, in portraiture. But he certainly was made genre scenes, some of orientalist scenes that he's already seen, and some of scenes from European contemporary life. Drawing his source of inspiration, like all genre painters in the 18th and 19th century, from the Dutch 17th century genre tradition. And here we have two examples, a woman, uh, a Dutch girl, a coffee, made when he was in Holland in 1756-57. Amongst other things, he was at that time not only marrying Marie Farg, but he was also accumulating his collection of old master paintings. And this is one of them, wonderfully hung on the wall in the room in which this woman sits. On the left-hand side is a work pastel on paper, six sheets of paper, called L'Ecriture, uh, made um, in 1752 in Lyon. Now, at first sight, this seems to be a genre scene. It's a narrative. Here's a young man who's just finished writing a letter. A boy comes in holding a candle, which he's, sh he's um, sh sh shielding from, the, from the, uh, the, the, the draft so that it can be placed on the table from which and then be used to melt the sealing wax, and just behind the sealing wax is a little seal, in order to seal the letter to send it off. But it has two other elements to it. One is that it is um, as much a portrait as it is a genre scene, because we know who the two sitters are. This is uh, Jean-Antoine Laverne, who is uh, Jacques-Antoine Laverne, who is the nephew of Lyotard, the son of his elder sister who'd married Monsieur Laverne in Lyon. And this is uh, Jacques-Antoine's young, uh, young nephew coming in on the left-hand side. So it's an elision between portraiture and genre scene. But also, given the detail of what we have laid out on the writing table in front here, it's also a still life. And it's that elision which comes so predominantly here in the portrait of Suzanne Courchot, uh, future Madame Jacques Necker of 1760. This is on four sheets of vellum. Now, this always bore the title of Madame Suzanne Necker. Fine. And that seems to suggest that, first and foremost, it was obviously intended as a portrait. She was, in fact, the wife of the last finance minister for Louis XVI and um, also the mother of uh, Madame de Stael, the famous authoress and um, critic, in fact, writer, importantly, on things German. Uh, she, however, was also an intellect in her own right. She had a very important salon in Paris, and I think showing her holding a book as is, is an indication of this status. 
She, however, has been reading, but her space again has been interrupted, like little Marie Francoise, uh, Marianne Francoise's, and uh, she has put her book down, turned to the right to see who's entering into her space. So it has an element of narrative containing it, which therefore puts it slightly in the direction of genre painting. And then there is this absolutely spectacular still life on the table, complete with brilliantly observed um, reflections cast in this shiny tabletop and so on, which reminds us that he's also engaging with still life here. So it's an illusion, really, of the three genres. And that, of course, is very well demonstrated when he executes pure still life, which is primarily from 1782 to 1787, two years before he dies, where we have this wonderful uh, tea set, um, still life, oil on canvas, and this one in pastel. Importantly, one of the characteristics of his still lives is that he never quite gets the space very comfortably described. And there is an element in which you feel often the still life is kind of tipping up onto the surface of, the, of its support, almost in a kind of proto-Cézanne-like way. It's really quite remarkable. Then I just want to finish with uh, Trompe l'œil. These are paintings which, where the artist seeks to convince the viewer that they're not looking at a representation of an object in the external world, but they're actually looking at the object itself, so much so that you can pick it off the canvas and walk away with it. And this, of course, is very well demonstrated, I think, in this Trompe l'œil portrait of Everard Faulkner, the man who runs like a kind of light motif through Lyotard's career, um, which is a mock cameo placed on a bas-relief, plus a bas-relief, which is then hung on a wall from a, a, a non-existent pin up here by a ribbon which is sent through a hole at the top of the pastel sheet itself. Up here we have half portrait of Marie-Thérèse, uh, Marie Thérèse, um, Maria Theresa, which uh, is based on a pastel that Lyotard made in, of her in 1762. But this is painted on a single plank of wood. It does, it's not two planks, it's one. And on the left-hand side, this is the plank itself with a, another bas-relief trompe l'oeil stuck on the top of it, hung from a little pin. And she is on the same plane as this, but painted with her own frame going round the outside, which peeks up over the top here, in, and then with a shadow cast by this plank, so-called, to indicate that it can move across her. In other words, it's on two planes, not one, but actually it's on one plane. And then just to summarise and bring all the threads together, um, the trompe l'oeil from the, from the Frick on the left-hand side um, with two bas-reliefs and two drawings. Here, the two plaster bas-reliefs are derived from prints after works by Boucher. The two drawings at the lower um, register are, are by Lyotard himself, one on the left-hand side of a man in a Moldavian cap and one on the right-hand side called a lady from Ulm, i.e. Germany. Now, Why? Lyotard is making a reference, I think, here to all the facets of his, of his art, if you like, of his work. The two plaster casts up at the top, derived from Boucher, remind us that his formation was primarily in Paris, and he was always acutely aware of that. He spent, after all, from 1722 to 1735 in that city, both training, working as an engraver, and establishing his reputation, acutely aware of the artists whom he was in competition with, whether it was uh, Quentin de la Tour, or whether it was Watteau, recently deceased, whether it was Chardin, or whether it was Boucher. He was also, however, a peripatetic artist, and he moved around Europe in search of his markets, and hence the inclusion of the drawings down below. But the fact that these treated it as a trompe l'oeil, because this plank behind is not a real plank, as in the case of the trompe on the top right-hand side, this is painted to make you think it's a plank. And so in that sense, he is basically underscoring the importance of verisimilitude as the leitmotif, the, the underlying principle, if you like, of his art. 
He paints what he sees in front of him within that great northern tradition and he doesn't shirk or doesn't idealize, doesn't how do they soften that degree of verisimilitude. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.